Welcome back to Origins and Evolution. Thank you for joining us again today. This is going to be part two to our Cancer and Evolution Symposium discussion. The first question today is for Frank. What are the implications of cancer evolution for early detection? Yes, as we learned during the Cancer and Evolution Symposium in the middle of October, there is progress and there's further room for improvement. As for progress, I would cite, for instance, the March 2020 publication in Annals of Oncology that was called Sensitive and Specific Multi-Cancer Detection and Localization Using Methylation Signatures in Cell-Free DNA. So it was one of these liquid biopsy papers, and it shows the way, in many ways, for early pan-cancer or multi-cancer detection in this case, by looking at epigenetics, namely the methylation signatures. And that paper showed excellent specificity, clearly improved positive predictive value, or PPV, plus very good uh, tissue of origin, or TOO localization, which would facilitate subsequent radiological imaging, for instance, by computer tomography or or PET or MRI. Uh, But one also has to recognize that there's still a lot of room and really a real medical need for further improvements in early stage sensitivity and positive predictive value or PPV improvements. So while cancer-free DNA methylation analysis needs to be complemented by higher sensitivity to detect precancerous and early stage one and two cancers, perhaps for targeted single or few cancer early detection and stratification methods. For instance, by looking at cell-free DNA or cell-free RNA, the transcriptome in genomic analysis using next-generation sequencing, but it will be quite important to complement these cancer cell-derived DNA or RNA or epigenetic methylation signatures with non-cancer cell-derived host or patient response biomarkers. How can we monitor the patient and their immune system for improved early detection going forward? Well, I think uh, the patient or the host is really inherently the most sensitive detector for early cancer. As I said, this can happen at the nucleic acids uh, genome or epigenome level, for instance, to detect host immune response to precancerous or stage one or two stimulation But it can also happen at the proteome or metabolite level, or what I sometimes refer to as the epiproteome level. More sensitive early cancer detection will benefit from liquid biopsies, that means taking blood, or other measurements from thin needle aspirations or saliva samples or other, other body samples, um, combined with machine learning or artificial intelligence, of characteristic epiproteome signatures or epiproteome biomarkers of proteins, of protein post-translational modifications, of protein-protein interaction networks, and of lipids, lipidomic, and metabolic signals. Now, we have to realize that these complementary patient or host response signals which are inherently more sensitive, are also inherently less specific. Just like in viral infection, detecting the virus is most specific. Detecting the inflammation that fights the viral infection may be much more sensitive. 
I snivel before I have a big viral load, uh, but it may be less specific. So the host response signals give you are bound to give you much, much higher sensitivity while measuring the cancer cells gives you the best specificity. And it seems like an obvious point, but it really isn't. And people always mix it together. So let's get the best host or patient response, immune response, sensitivity, and combine that with the earliest, most specific measurements of the actual cancer cells in the host, in the patient. And together, that gives us or will give us much improved, the badly needed, much improved early stage positive predictive value with moderate and good specificity by measuring the host, but excellent sensitivity. So in summary, we really have to look at multi-omic signatures, not just genomics, not just epigenetics, not even just transcriptomics, but proteome and epiproteome signals. And we have to do that both for the cancer cells, which, if you recall, are now behaving like an own, like their own unicellular species, an invasive species that's trying to benefit at the expense of the patient. That's the nature of cancer. So we have to study both the cancer cells and the patients and the host response together to get this highest meaningful diagnostic PPV or positive predictive, predictive value for really useful early detection of cancer so we can do a much better job of treating it earlier. And I think the last caveat I would like to add, and I've said that in the previous episode, is that we need to be reminded of something that most cancer researchers forget, i.e. the early detection signatures or biomarkers of the first cancer or precancerous cells are inherently going to be fairly different from the biomarkers or cancer signatures of MRD, of minimal residual disease, or looking at markers of therapy response or of cancer recurrence. And these today, conceptually, because people are not thinking of cancer as they always should as an evolutionary phenomenon, very often these are all thrown together and they're obscure that, in fact, these types of biomarkers and signatures in very early first cancer and later in recurrence monitoring are likely to be quite different. Can you remind us what is epigenetics and what are epigenetic markers? Yes, epigenetics has been you know discovered in the last two decades. Um, it means that it's not only the DNA sequence of our genes, but also whether these genes are up or down regulated, as scientists would say, whether they're active and expressed and active in biology, or whether they're silenced, that can be driven by epigenetic molecular modifications. The most well-known of these epigenetic modifications is a methylation, that's a small chemical group um, that can be added to DNA and to genes, and that can usually is used to silence them. If you have multiple methylation sites, These are small chemical modifications to the genes. These genes essentially can no longer be read uh, by the cellular machinery and become silenced. There are other epigenetic markers, such as the histone code or the chromatin structures, that determine whether genes are accessible and can be read by the cellular machinery, 
or whether they may be folded in somewhere and simply cannot be accessed geometrically, so to speak, and therefore cannot be expressed and effectively are silenced. So these are all parts of what we call as epigenetics in its more in its more concise and, and narrow definition. Some people also use epigenetics very, very broadly as simply meaning anything other than genes, but I think these very broad definitions are not that useful. When you say upregulated and downregulated, what does that mean? Upregulated means a gene produces a lot more proteins ultimately, and that's where the rubber hits the road. The proteins are the enzymes. That's where the biological activity takes place. And when it's downregulated or perhaps silenced completely, a gene may be there, and in principle it codes for a piece of, uh, of, of a protein. But if the protein is not expressed because the gene is downregulated or silenced, the protein's not, is not there, the enzyme doesn't do its biological job. What are the implications of cancer evolution for therapy strategies? Well, there are quite a few, and that's really uh, emerging now. And so they, I, I put them into various different categories. But uh, in, um, we, we can't do business as usual because, um, you know, cancer, some of the cancer therapy strategies that we have, for, in, for instance, surgery and lumpectomies in breast cancer, they're actually quite successful in many cases when you treat cancer, breast detect and treat and operate breast cancer early on. Can you please explain the difference between a surgery and a lumpectomy? Uh, surgery is a very general term, uh, i.e. And a surgeon does an invasive procedure and cuts into the body and takes something out usually and stitches it back up. And a lumpectomy is very specifically in, in breast cancer usually the removal of breast tissue, namely the one that is thought to be malignant and tumorous. That's a lumpectomy. An interesting factor tidbit is that the first mastectomy ever recorded goes back to by about 3,000 years to ancient Egypt as uh, the first surgical removal of a breast cancer tumor was uh, discovered on papyrus paper revealing that the ancient Egyptians were most likely the first people to perform such a surgery. Absolutely. I don't know exactly how good their antiseptic procedures were at the time. <laughs> yep. Maybe it saved or prolonged some, uh, I believe it was some queen whose life may have been prolonged at least by the undoubtedly rather crude surgical methods they had at the time. But yes, indeed, that's uh, it has a long tradition. So there are other detection methods. Of course, we'd like to not do surgery or, or very toxic um, chemotherapy or radiation therapy even immunotherapy has enormous number of uh, is, is very expensive, has toxic byproducts. It can lead to hyperprogression, uh, and eventually, it often becomes ineffective. Uh, sometimes, in many of these therapy methods, you see amazing progress, um, and then after some, you know, period of time, recurrence, and 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 in the recurrence of then therapy resistant and metastasizing really bad stage four, stage five cancer. So very early detection, other than prevention, very early detection at the precancerous stage or even in stage one or two of clinical cancer may in general permit successful, gentler, less toxic cancer treatments, which hopefully also are not going to accelerate the gen genome destabilization that triggers runaway evolution of these multiclonal cancer species that we've been discussing and that eventually tend to defeat later treatments. So the 
present paradigm that's generally used for adult cancer patients. We're doing somewhat better with childhood cancers, I'm happy to report. But for adults, it's usually the single target, single drug, sometimes called monotherapy strategies. Um, for late-stage cancer, may generally present a nearly futile long-term therapeutic strategy in view of the insights that we have rapidly evolving multiclonal cancer species. So short of the surgical removal, for instance, in breast cancer, recurrence often seems pre-programmed. So the traditional drug discovery and development strategies by and large seem to be, with a few exceptions, a dead end for most advanced stage 3 or even stage 5 cancers and nearly inevitably fail for metastasizing cancers. So what can be done about it? So one of the things that we've learned from cancer as an evolutionary phenomenon are the adaptive therapy strategies, for instance, by Bob Gattenby at the Moffitt Cancer Center that have been used to extend the progression-free survival meaningfully, i.e. not by a few weeks or a couple of months, but by several years, at least in older patients, where you're not always looking for a cure, you might be very pleased to extend life by five years if the alternative is with advanced cancer that a patient may die in a few months or weeks. So um, compared to the present maximum tolerated dose therapy, these adaptive modulated smart therapy strategies may not may lead to very significant, hopefully years of progression-free survival, which is huge progress. Um, and they do not generally result in a cure of cancer per se, but you know, the alternative, there is no cure either. The patient just dies earlier, but at least, and that is progress of sorts, they may turn lethal cancers into chronic, more manageable cancers with longer survival times. Now, for young patients, that may not be a very attractive alternative. If you have a 25-year-old patient, buying them five more years, well, is, is, is progress, but it is not. You, you really want to go for more of a cure and hopefully give them a long lifetime. And they're really these so-called extinction therapies are very promising the combination of breast cancer, lumpectomy, removal, and, 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 and chemotherapy in early-stage breast cancer is a form of extinction therapy. Removing a melanoma early enough and doing a little bit of local chemotherapy may be a successful extinction therapy, but there are many, many other cancers where that's not working. And we really have to consider going from the single drug therapy until the cancer recurs to the what's what's no less than a multiple assault of successive or parallel therapies which may be quite harsh but they together have a much better chance of actually providing a cure for instance to a young patient who wants to live a very long life um, because they these extinction therapies do not ease the extinction pressures on the cancer cell clones um, and do not allow them to recover the cancer cell populations 
prior to recurrence. So there, in many ways, seemed like a much start, much smarter strategy than the present approach that generally uses a single drug on an adult until it no longer works and the cancer clinically has recovered. That's the state of the therapy, and it is probably a very, very bad approach because by that time, the cancer that comes back is not the same cancer. It is a further evolved cancer that very likely is generally much more therapy-resistant and, at least that's been empirically observed, is also much more likely to metastasize, in which case the chances for the patients are rapidly deteriorating. How can the patient's immune system contribute to the modern medical battle with cancer? Yeah, I sometimes, uh, you know, I, uh, it's, it's tough to do cancer, uh, for, for pharma companies to discover cancer drugs and, and develop them, and obviously that costs a billion or more, and so many of them fail. Um, so immunotherapy, in principle, looks at the patient, at the human body, um, as the most flexible and fastest drug maker, if you like, i.e., let's leverage the immune system because the human body and our immune system, we know that from bacterial and viral infections, it has the speed and flexibility, and from an evolutionary perspective, the co-evolvability to keep up with a runaway cancer cell evolution. Now, it's not that simple. Uh, it often requires the simultaneous downregulation of cancer cells' ability, uncanny ability, to suppress or co-opt the host immune system. So we have to look at more advanced and often iterative cancer therapy sequential strategies that we can derive from these insights. But we really need to move in the best chance of us making progress in therapy in addition to early stage detection and in addition to the adaptive life prolongation strategies or the extinction therapies is to leverage the body's immune system. Our immune system is incredibly fast, flexible, and can evolve or co-develop and can keep up. Um, but we need to become much, much smarter in using it in real time and not just the one-time immunotherapy approaches. A, they're expensive, don't always work, have tremendous toxicities, and sometimes lead to hyperprogression. But the one-time spectacular CAR T-type immunotherapies, I question whether they're a successful strategy because you only have this one-time effect. And yes, we all have seen examples of cancer melting away in advanced cancer patients. But often in those same cancer patients, another few weeks or months later, that cancer is back with a vengeance and completely untreatable. So... Real-time, flexible patient immunotherapy while suppressing the cancer's ability to downregulate or to suppress the immune system in the cancer tumor microenvironment or elsewhere are some of the most promising approaches for treating advanced cancers. What were some of the most intriguing new treatment strategies discussed at the Cancer and Evolution Symposium? Yes, there were certainly some totally unexpected uh, new insights. Um, maybe before I comment specifically on the, on the therapy insights, I'd like to give a shout out to Henry Hang and his book on genome cancer and genome chaos. It's really incredibly insightful. This came out last year. 
um, also someone Ken Pienta on at, at uh, Johns Hopkins and independently Jin Song Liu at MD Anderson have been working on these um, polyploid giant cancer cells and have published on them. And I think Jin Son has worked on this for 10 years. So really some key contributions to the field. And, uh, you know, while many great contributions were made, I was really very uh, intrigued by some of the Nantwork strategies that Patrick Sun-Xiong described in, in his uh, brilliant presentation. But to, you know, to final finish things and answer your question, I thought the uh, work by Michael Levin at Tufts University, uh, who, who I guess is um, also probably um, working at least conceptually with Carlos Sonnenschein on the, uh, on the organismal field theory, showed that macroscopic tissue and organismal control really play a role and not only bottoms up cellular or molecular and cellular processes. And we tend to ignore those altogether, but they could show that they're really very important. Um, turns out that every cell in our bodies, not only the neural cells, have bioelectric potentials and that tissue organization, growth direction, wound healing, uh, and also whether or not there is organismal control or whether it's lost and cancer occurs, occur at this tissue and organism or an organ control not, uh, level um, of organization that, um, that, that they're studying at Tufts, for instance. It turns out that rogue cancer cells that are now following their atavistic unicellular selfish proliferation strategies, however short-sighted they might be, because the cancer cells will die with the patients, but they don't know that, um, could be potentially addressed by re-establishing tissue control. For instance, using things like bioelectric potentials. That's not a drug, that's not surgery, that's something totally different that has been largely ignored. And it is so good that there are some researchers, in this case at Tufts and perhaps a few other locations, that are looking at these macroscopic tissue organizational uh, levels of how cells normally are controlled in a multicellular organism, how that organismal control can be lost, leading, for instance, to rogue cancer cells, and how perhaps we can think of future strategies to reestablish that organismal control and bring cancer cells back from the brink or back from yeah, their evil existence to being good team players again in a tissue or organ. And the other part I'd like to um, I'd like to acknowledge, and that'll be my final point, is the discovery or the rediscovery of the polyploidal giant cancer cells, known and wrongfully ignored for almost a hundred years, whose crucial role in cancer evolution and in the survival of these PGCCs uh, during harsh therapy and subsequent reproliferation and spawning off of uh, very aggressive, malignant, metastatic, small cancer cells is so incredibly important and, and show why cancer evolution often wins even over harsh therapy. However, having said all of that, that's all bad news, but at least now we understand why the PGCCs or polyploid giant cancer cells are so important. Um, at least it gives us a new insight, a new understanding, and hopefully, as Ken Pienta had pointed out, 
new potential targets of, of therapy strategies that very specifically target these PGCCs or these giant cancer cells. And if we find additional, you know, cruise missiles to hit them very specifically, in addition to treating all the other cancer cells, maybe that combination in the future could lead to the complete extinction of cancer cells, which, as we know, would then lead to something akin to a cure. We encourage everyone, um, if you're interested, to check out Michael Levin's talk and presentation. Uh, its title is, Can Organismal Pattern Homeostasis Suppress Cancer? Uh, it's actually pretty incredible. They have shown in frog models that they can initiate metastatic melanoma by disrupting bioelectric communication in these drugs they call electrocuticles. Uh, they can also track the appearance of precancer by its bioelectrical signature. Best of all, they can normalize tumors caused by oncogenes by forcibly reconnecting them to the patterning network in vivo. Uh, they go on to say that their approach suggests a new roadmap for cancer medicine where instead of toxic chemotherapy, they propose the use of computer-modeled selected existing ion-channel drugs, uh, such as these electrocuticles, to normalize tumors via ancient morphogenic pathways. And it was uh, absolutely eye-opening and just an incredible talk all around that uh, you may have to watch two or three times because it really was um, that outstanding, as, as were many of the talks. We learned so much uh, from Henry Hang as well. And... Um, we're both going to uh, read his book, Genome Chaos, and we greatly look forward to that. On the next episode, we will discuss with Demitar why making further progress in cancer treatment and prevention is paramount to the future of planetary colonization. Again, the website for today was www.cancerevolution.org. Thank you, and please join us again next time. <laughs>